All right, well, we're going to jump into our message. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, today is one of our Q&A Sundays. And so we like to do these on a fairly regular basis. We haven't done one for a while, uh, but I feel like these are really, really important part of the life of our church family. Um, because it's very important that we continue to explore the questions that we've got and to wrestle with the things that we're uncertain about. Now, part of that is because in a healthy family, you have the opportunity to be able to question things and to be able to ask, why is that important? Or why do we emphasize that? Or how come we have to do that that way? And in a healthy church or a healthy church family, we want to have the same atmosphere where we've got the opportunity to be able to say, well, I'm not sure about this, or I don't understand this, or how does this work? It's actually really, really dangerous if churches in particular get to a place where we say it's not okay for you to question things, it's not okay for you to have any doubts about anything. We know that the church has a long history of doing some things that have been very hurtful to people. Of course, the most recent thing being the amount of child abuse that's happened in the church. And those sorts of environments are created where people are told you're not allowed to challenge anything, you're not allowed to say anything. And we know that the worst version of that looks like cults where you have a leader who can't be challenged about anything. And so we obviously want to stay way away from that and create a space where we can say, if you're questioning things, if you're wrestling with things, then please bring it up. We also want to recognise that our journey following Jesus is not something where we're supposed to have all of the answers. And sometimes we can fall into that trap. And even doing these Sundays, I get a little bit cautious about them because it can kind of seem like this is me putting on a big show. Look how clever I am. I know everything, which is definitely not true. I have the privilege of being able to do some research during the week to be able to dig into some of these questions. And I still have lots of questions and lots of things that I wrestle with and doubts that I have as well. But when we hold up this picture that following Jesus is supposed to be about having it all together and knowing everything, we actually miss the point that our journey is all about faith. It's supposed to be about trust. And the reality is that any belief system, whether it is Christianity or any other belief system, or whether it's the absence of a belief system and saying that God doesn't exist at all, is all about faith. Because there is no definitive proof for anything. No one can definitively prove that God does exist or that God doesn't exist. Whatever we believe is about us doing the work to be able to say, I believe there's more evidence for this than there is for this and that's why I choose to believe what I do. But there's always these questions that we're left with and these things for us to process through. And so that's why these Sundays are really, really important for us uh, to dig into. We also recognise that the reality is that if we're continuing to read the Bible, and in particular I know whenever I read the teachings of Jesus and look at Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and look at the things that Jesus tells us, there's plenty that I have questions about to say, well, how does that work and what does it mean to put that together? And then as I look at the other parts of the Bible, there are lots of questions. Well, how does that all fit together with what Jesus came to show us and what Jesus came to teach us? So if we are continuing to read and to learn and to process, then there should be things uh, that we're working through that come up. And so for all those reasons, that's why it's important for us to do that. And so uh, today we'll be doing some questions. Next week we'll be doing some more questions. And as I said, you've got those little uh, sheets in side of Connect News. So if there's other things that come up for you today, feel free to write them down and they may get included next week or we'll hold on to them. I also wanted to say that if the questions, if the answers that we explore today aren't enough, so if this is one of the questions that you've asked and there's not enough there, then please do come and talk and we can chat more and unpack things more. Try to give kind of an overview of what some of the different answers are, um, but if you'd like to explore that more, then please come and chat with me. 
In terms of your teaching notes, you'll see that you've got a very blank piece of paper there. Uh, that's so that you can write down whatever is helpful for you. But what I would say is, please make sure that you're thinking about things that you'd like to hold on for later. Because part of what we've also said these are about is the opportunity for us to be able to answer the questions that our families have, our extended families have, our neighbours have, people at work, people at school and uni who ask really great questions. We want to be able to have some of those things somewhere so that we can call on them because some of the things we're going to talk about today are questions that lots of people wrestle with. So feel free to jot down whatever is helpful for you. So, you ready? So let's jump in. So first question that we've got, uh, we had quite a few questions that were related to Easter, obviously, because we've just come through Easter. So the first set of questions, why did they start calling it Good Friday? Why was it a Friday? Why was it so early in the year? And did they celebrate it in the year after or later than that? So in order to wrestle through this question, we want to talk a little bit, first of all, about Passover and understand the Passover festival that was happening. So the Passover festival uh, is a festival that Jewish people still celebrate that goes back thousands and thousands of years where they take the time every year to remind themselves of when they were set free from slavery in Egypt. And so they do a lot of very symbolic things, including a uh, Passover meal, where they take the opportunity to work through some things to remind themselves, yes, we remember when we were in slavery and God set us free. So that happens on the 15th day of a month called Nisan, which is the seventh month of the Hebrew calendar. Now, the Hebrew calendar is a lunar calendar, which means that it's tied to the moon, not the same as we have with 28, 30 or 31 days. So all of uh, the Hebrew calendar months are either 29 or 30 days. As a quick aside, there is a big difference between uh, the Hebrew calendar and what those who follow Islam would have as their calendar. Uh, both of them are tied to lunar cycles, so that's why their months don't necessarily line up. And we've just begun uh, the time of Ramadan, which is a time of fasting for people who are Muslims. And you might have noticed that that seems to happen at all types of different times throughout the year. And the reason for that is obviously because they have 29 or 30 days every month, it kind of shifts and gets earlier and earlier. In order for the Jewish people to be able to continue to have Passover sometime in the spring, every few years they throw an extra month in so that they can do some catch-up so that Passover is always around about the same time of year. So just in case you're wondering about that ever and why Ramadan shifts, why Passover is at a different time, uh, that's the answer to that one. You're welcome. That's extra, no extra payment required. So because their months are tied to the moon, the 15th of the month is always the full moon. So that's why Passover is when it is, because it's when the full moon happens. And the Passover festival runs for a total of eight days. So they do all of these great things, as I said, to celebrate being set free from slavery in Egypt. So what's all this got to do with Easter? Well, we recognise that Jesus was in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover festival. And so Jesus and his friends, the disciples, were in Jerusalem so that they would have the opportunity to be able to celebrate exactly what we've talked about. And so on the Thursday night, they had the Passover meal at the start of this season. So why was Good Friday on a Friday? Well, the reason is just because they knew where Jesus was going to be when they arrested him. So because Jesus was there for the Passover meal, because they knew where he was going to be, and because, as you know with the story, Judas had chosen to betray Jesus, he was able to tell the religious leaders, he's going to be eating the meal here, and then they're going to head over to the Garden of Gethsemane, and so you'll be able to grab him there. 
So the reality is that it could have happened at any time during the Passover festival. It could have happened on Monday and it could have been Good Monday instead or it could have happened on the Wednesday. But it was just convenient that that's when they knew where Jesus was going to be. And in terms of the question about why it was so early in the year, that's exactly the same. It was just it happened to be when the Passover was. Now the reality is, and Jesus actually says this, they could have arrested Jesus at any point. Jesus says, you know, I've been at the temple, I've been hanging around a lot. Why have you come to get me right now? It was just a convenient time. But also there was this brewing uh, uprising that was happening through that week as they headed into Passover. People felt like something was happening and the religious leaders took this as the opportunity to say, enough's enough. We're going to grab Jesus now while we've got the chance. So when did Good Friday start being celebrated as Good Friday? Well, no one is actually completely sure. We know that the early church continued to celebrate the Passover festival in the years after the events that we celebrate at Easter took place. But what they did was that they started to shift the emphasis. And this is where we would say, even though it kind of just happened randomly because that was a convenient time to grab Jesus, the reality is there was something very symbolic about it happening at Passover. Because all of a sudden, the shift happened for the early church, where instead of focusing on being set free from slavery in Egypt, they said, Jesus has set us free as our sacrifice, and he set us free once and for all. And that's something that everyone can celebrate. So sometime in the first couple of centuries, that shift started to happen, where there was less of an emphasis on Passover and the Passover meal as it had been, and more of an emphasis on Jesus's sacrifice. In the second century, we've got some records that indicate that Easter was starting to be celebrated as Easter as we know it. And for the first 300 years or so, Easter was celebrated tied to Passover. So it was tied to that 15th day of the month. So Easter Sunday was the first Sunday after the 15th of Nisan each year. But in 325 AD, uh, a whole bunch of changes happened in the church. And one of those was that the date for Easter was tied to what it is now with our calendar, where we have this very complicated work way of working it out, which is that Easter Sunday is the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox, which for us is the autumn equinox, which is generally around March 21st. So March 21st happens. Then at some point, there's a full moon. And then the next Sunday after that is when we celebrate Easter Sunday, which is why Easter moves all over the place within the span of four or five weeks. Now, one thing I did want to mention with this is that you might have heard people say at different times that Easter is just a pagan festival that was adopted by Christians. And you might have also heard people say that about Christmas as well, that Christmas is just, it was originally this pagan festival and the Christians took it and they adopted it. There is some evidence of that, that there was this big festival that celebrated the goddess of spring and that Christians kind of tapped into that festival. But I personally don't have a big issue with that being the reality at all because it makes perfect sense when you stop and think about it. If you were a part of the early church, this very small group of people, relatively speaking, you didn't really have the opportunity to stick your hand up and say, "Uh, we've decided that we would like to have a day off to be able to celebrate Christmas and to be able to celebrate Easter, and we're just going to pick whatever day we like. Uh, Is that all right with everyone? Because the answer would have been a firm no. So it makes perfect sense that the early church would have tapped into some festivals that were already happening But as we've talked about with Passover, then transformed that to be able to focus on what it was that they wanted to celebrate, whether that's Christmas or Easter. 
So if you ever have anyone, and this is something that regularly happens, who challenges that and says, well, all of the Christian things that you celebrate are all just pagan festivals, in some ways you can say, well, that may be true. We don't actually know if it's fully true or not. But even if it is true, it actually makes a lot of sense. But what's wrong with us taking a date that's already been set aside and then being able to say, we're going to use that as an opportunity to celebrate the things that we believe? So the last part of that question is then, why is it called Good Friday? Because obviously, as we look at the events that took place on that day, it's not good. <laughs> Jesus sacrifice, Jesus' death, all of the things that happened to Jesus. We should call it Bad Friday or Sad Friday or Black Friday, although Black Friday has now been hijacked completely, so that would have been a problem. Obviously, at the time, it wasn't a good day. But as we look back on what Jesus has done for us and recognise everything that comes out of what happens on that Friday, we would say it's not just good, it's fantastic. Maybe we should call it Fantastic Friday instead. But that's why we call it Good Friday rather than Sad Friday, even though some bad things happened. So, hope that's helpful. As I said, if you've got more questions, if that was your question, feel free to come and ask some more about it. All right, next question. Go back one, there we go. So uh, why did the resurrected Jesus only show himself to his disciples? He could have shown himself to the Jewish religious leaders or Pilate as well. And then someone else asked, how long did it take everyone to find out that Jesus died and then came back to life? So I thought it would be helpful to show all of the different references about who Jesus did appear to. So uh, that's the list on the next slide there. So first of all, we know that uh, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene, uh, and that happened in John chapter 20. We know that Jesus appeared to Mary, Salome, and Joanna, that Jesus appeared to Peter, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, which we looked at last week, uh, that Jesus appeared to the disciples minus Thomas, so poor Thomas missed out on that opportunity. We'll talk more about that in a sec. Then Jesus appeared to all of the disciples, including Thomas. Then Jesus appeared to the seven disciples on the Sea of Galilee, and also the 11 disciples on the mountain. So we have all of these different snapshots where Jesus has appeared to people after he has come back on Easter Sunday. But we also have this really interesting set of verses that Paul writes to the church in Corinth. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, Jesus was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all of the apostles. So it's really interesting that we've got all these little snapshots and then Paul throws in this one liner where he says, oh, and there was also that time when Jesus appeared to 500 people all at once, which we initially would say, well, because we don't have any record of that, like did that actually happen? But Paul just then says... And lots of those people are still alive. And Paul's clear implication there, and we remember that the letter to the Corinthians was written about 20 years after all of the events of Easter had happened. Paul's implication is to say, and if you don't believe me, then go and ask around. Because there were lots and lots of people who got to see Jesus at that event. So go and talk to someone and they'll be able to confirm that this actually happened. That's super important for us because we recognise that if that wasn't true, some people absolutely would have gone and asked around about this. And if they went and asked a bunch of people, they would have said, Paul, nobody knows anything about this story about Jesus appearing to 500 people. You're just making all of this up. And so that letter would have been invalidated. So the fact that it lives on and the fact that it was obviously confirmed gives us a lot of confidence. 
So all of those different events took place over a period of 40 days, so a month and a bit, and uh, we know that that took place between when Jesus rose and when Jesus ascended to heaven. So coming back to the question then, the question is, why is it that Jesus only appeared to the disciples? Like, wouldn't it have been much more helpful if Jesus had appeared to someone like Pilate or to the religious leaders to say, uh, you guys were wrong? Wouldn't it have been helpful if Jesus had done something like that? And I imagine that the implication behind this is to say, well, if Jesus had appeared to more people, then more people would have believed, and that would mean that we could have more confidence in what we believe as well. What's interesting is what is written at the end of the book of Matthew about some of the disciples who were gathered with Jesus. So remember, a number of these disciples have seen Jesus multiple times, but they're gathered on this hill and we read, the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Now, there's a couple of things here. First of all, this again gives us a lot of confidence that what Matthew has written is not something that's been edited. Because if you were making up a story about how Jesus had come back from the dead, you would not say, and some of the people who saw Jesus still weren't quite sure. You would say, and everyone was rock solid confidence that this was the risen Jesus who is the king of the universe and everyone was very happy about that. You wouldn't say some of them doubted. So again, this helps us to trust in what we've got in the book of Matthew. But if some of the disciples who had spent time with Jesus and were actually standing in front of Jesus had some doubts about that to say, I'm still not quite sure. I'm still not sure whether I fully believe this. I'm still not sure I can get my head around it. That helps us to recognise that it wouldn't have mattered if Jesus had appeared to Pilate or to the religious leaders or to Roman guards or to anyone else because there's just as much chance that they all would have struggled with it as well. And what's helpful for us is what Jesus does say to Thomas. So as I mentioned, there is one setting where Jesus appears to his disciples and Thomas isn't there and he comes back and then he says, or the disciples all say to him, we saw Jesus and he was alive, he was right here with us. And Thomas is like, good for you guys, but I don't believe you and I'm not going to believe it until I actually see him for myself and can put my hand in where the holes were in his body. And so a little bit later on, Jesus then does reappear and Thomas is there this time. It's like, oh, okay, I guess I was wrong. You guys were right. My bad. And Jesus then says these very powerful words to him in John chapter 20, verse 29. He says to Thomas, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. And so that's the challenge for us, is to be able to say, yes, there are people who got to see Jesus in the flesh after his resurrection, and even that some of them struggled with it. But Jesus says, blessed are we who take the opportunity to say, even though Jesus isn't standing right in front of us physically, we still have the opportunity to be able to believe there's something really rich about that as we continue to process through things. So again, hopefully that's helpful. If you want to chat more about that one, let me know. All right, next question. Why does Jesus sometimes tell people not to speak about the miracle or healing that he's just performed? And someone else said a couple of times in our readings, Jesus has told people not to tell of the miracle he's just done for them. What's the deal with that? Why do we think that he did that? So uh, in Luke chapter 5, so we read through the book of Luke, uh, if you remember, before Easter, uh, we have this example where Jesus heals a man who's got leprosy. And after Jesus heals him, 
Jesus instructed him not to tell anyone what had happened. He said, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who've been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. So what's important to recognise here is that Jesus actually often does this, that healing for Jesus is not just about being healed physically. For Jesus, healing is about being able to be healed emotionally, being able to be healed spiritually, and being able to be healed socially in terms of being able to be restored back to your place in society, to be able to fully participate in life. And so what Jesus says to this man is go to the temple and do all of the things that you need to do, all of the rituals that you need to go through so that you can re-enter back into society, that you can participate in your faith community, that you can be a part of life again. Because as someone with leprosy, they obviously had been cast out of society, they were off to the fringes, and they needed to prove that they were fully healed in order to be able to re-enter things. So Jesus' focus for this man is to say, I want to make sure that you get back to life the way that it's supposed to be. So go and do all of these things. Don't go and tell everyone about it but just go to the priest, get this all sorted out so that you can participate in life. But we also have in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus heals two blind men and he specifically says to them, see that no one hears about this. Uh, In Mark chapter 7, Jesus heals a man who's deaf and mute and after he heals him, he says, don't go and tell anyone about this. But we also have these examples like in Luke chapter 8 where Jesus heals a man who was possessed by demons And what he says to that man is, don't come and follow me, because this man said, can I come and follow you? And Jesus says, no, no, go back to your home and tell everyone how much God has done for you. So what we recognise is that Jesus didn't have this one-size-fits-all answer where he said to everyone that he healed, don't say anything about it, or where he says to everyone, go and do this, or where he says, come and follow me. Jesus is very specific based on individuals to say, this is what I would like you to do. But the understanding about why it is that Jesus was a bit cautious, especially initially, about people who'd been healed, making too big a fuss about it, there's really three very good reasons for that. The first of them is just logistics. So in Luke chapter 5 and in Mark chapter 1, after Jesus does the healing, what happens immediately after that is that we're told Jesus was stopped from being able to enter into towns because there was so many people around And so particularly early in Jesus' ministry, he wanted to talk to as many people as he could about the kingdom and help them to understand this is what life's all about, this is why I've come. And so obviously there was no amplification in Jesus' day. And so if there was this massive crowd that started following him around everywhere, that was going to make it really hard for him to get his message out. So that's the first reason why Jesus kind of said, let's just keep a lid on this for now. The second reason is that Jesus didn't want people to follow him just because of the tricks that he could do. And you can imagine how easy it would have been for people to just start following Jesus because of this sense of Jesus is doing all these miracles and it's really amazing and so we're going to get swept up in the hype of that. And we know that Jesus was about so much more than just these grand displays of power, that he came to help us understand what it looks like to focus on others-centred love, to focus on servanthood, to focus on sacrifice, And so Jesus didn't want this big hypey crowd following him around who were just focused on all of the miracles that he could do. The third thing is what we have talked about a number of times before, that there was this growing understanding about Jesus potentially being the Messiah and the misunderstanding that was attached to that. 
We've talked before about how the Messiah, the understanding was that this military ruler was going to come, who was going to come in power and overthrow the Roman government and restore Israel back to its former glory. And so you can see how people would have tapped into that to say, oh, here's this guy who can do all these miracles, all of these displays of power. That's more evidence that he must be the Messiah and that he's about to start this big uprising. And so later on, Jesus is very cautious about that in terms of people finding out what's going on because he doesn't want them to just follow him as the Messiah from that perspective. Again, he knows where his journey's heading and he doesn't want people to get distracted from that. So that's the reason why. There are times when Jesus says, don't say anything about this, but we also recognise there's other times where Jesus says, go and spread the word, tell everyone what God has done for you. All right, we'll do one more question for today. So if God knows everything, then he'll know whether we follow him, we will follow him or not and therefore knows if we'll go to heaven before we're born. So why do we have to live on earth? So really great question. If God knows everything about everything, then he knows whether we're going to ultimately choose him, which means he knows whether we're going to end up in heaven. So why not cut out the middleman and just speed things up? And if we're going to go to heaven, let's just make that happen immediately and be done with the whole show. So there's a few things for us to pull apart from this because there's lots of really important questions that sit below this question. The first one is that it's important for us to recognise the difference between God knowing something and God causing something to happen. So that's an important thing for us to state up front. There are two very different schools of theology, understandings about the ways in which God works. One which is that God is the one who knows everything and the understanding with that is that God is sovereign, which means that God therefore causes everything to happen. The idea here is to say, well, if God is sovereign and God is the ruler over everything, then God must know everything that every that is going to happen, but God's also responsible to make sure all of those things happen. And we as fallen humans can't get in the way of those plans, so God has to cause everything to happen. Part of what's wrapped up in this is an understanding that there are two groups of people, which are sometimes called the elect and the non-elect. So the elect are the group of people who are going to choose God and end up therefore being able to go to heaven. And the non-elect are obviously the group who are not going to choose God and therefore are not going to go to heaven. And the understanding with that school of thought about God being completely sovereign and causing everything to happen is that God already knows and causes people to be a part of the elect or not. And so I'll be very honest, I have a very hard time with that school of theology. And I sit in the other school of theology, which says that God does know everything because God exists outside of time. And so God sees the end from the beginning and he knows all of the decisions that we're going to make. But God gives us complete free will, complete choice to be able to make whatever decisions we want to make. And the reason why I feel like I have to lean that way is because I have a hard time believing in a God who would say at the beginning of creation, all of these people, you're in. All of these people, I'm creating you and you're going to miss out. So I'm creating you in advance knowing that you've definitely got no chance of coming and following me and being a part of what I've got for you. I have a bit of a hard time with that picture of what God is like. But I also have a hard time recognising if God's responsible for everything, then that means God is responsible for all of the bad things that happen in the world. So all of the poor choices that people make, all of the things that cause suffering, God's ultimately responsible for that. And I have a hard time matching that up with the picture that I have of Jesus. 
for me, I have to be able to say, God knows all of the decisions that are going to happen. However, God gives us the ability to make our own choices, even if those choices cause significant hurt to others, cause destruction to others, or cause us to walk away from him. And part of why that's really important to recognise is that God's passion for us is a relationship. God doesn't want to force us to love him because that's not real love. If we're forced to love someone, that's messed up on a number of different levels. God wants us to choose him. And so that requires him to let go of the reins and say, therefore you get your free will to be able to choose me or to be able to walk away from me, which is a huge risk on God's part when you think about it. So coming back to the question then, it's a valid thing to be able to unpack, to say, well, when we choose Jesus, why don't we just go to heaven immediately after that? So even if it's not all predetermined necessarily, at that moment when we choose to follow Jesus, why don't we just get transported up to heaven and then that's the end of it. And the reason why this is important to wrestle with is because sadly, That is what a lot of the message of Jesus has been about, particularly through the 20th century, is that if we wrap up Jesus' message, it's simply this, believe in Jesus so you can go to heaven. End of story. The challenge for us is that Jesus actually says very, very little along those lines. You will find it very hard to find any verses that have Jesus in his teaching saying, the goal of your life is to follow me so that you can go to heaven. Jesus spends a lot of time talking about this thing called the kingdom. And he says all these words, like in what we call the Lord's Prayer, the model that Jesus gave us for prayer, where he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus talks about the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is near, the kingdom is among you. Jesus' focus is very much on the reality of saying, our goal at the end of the day is not just to choose him so that we can get our ticket to heaven, Our goal is actually to bring heaven to earth. That what Jesus has done through his life, death and resurrection is open the opportunity for us to experience everything that God has always wanted us to be able to experience. Now, yes, part of that is that by choosing Jesus, we have the opportunity to experience that for eternity when we move from this life to the next. But there's so much more to following Jesus than just getting that ticket. Our journey of following Jesus is supposed to be about us being able to say, what's my role in helping to bring heaven down to earth? What's the opportunity that I've got to be able to help people to experience life the way that God always wanted it to be? We don't have to wait until the end of this life to experience heaven. We have the privilege of being able to experience that in the here and now and to share that with the people around us. So to come back to the question, why is it that God doesn't just transport us up to heaven the minute that we choose to follow Jesus? It's because there's a lot more to following Jesus than just getting our ticket to heaven. And that's where I want to wrap up today, is to give us an opportunity to reflect on what that looks like as we head out into this week. And to be able to spend a bit of time saying, how can we help create heaven on earth as we head out into the week? What does it look like for us to embrace this reality that Jesus has come to allow us to experience that life? And so in the things that we've got going on this week, what are the opportunities that we've got to help people to experience heaven, to experience the kingdom, to experience life the way that it's supposed to be, to have a taste of what it looks like to experience peace, hope, unconditional love, joy even in the midst of suffering? 
to be able to encourage each other, to be able to support each other, to be able to cheer each other on. So as we wrap up our message before we transition to communion, I want to give you a couple of minutes to be able to just think about that. And I want to encourage you to think about the week ahead, think about the people that you're going to interact with, think about the appointments that you've got, the things that you've got on, work that you're going to do, people that you're going to see, and take some time to say, what does it look like this week for me to be able to help people to experience heaven on earth? as I continue to follow Jesus. So take some time to reflect on that. If you want to chat to the person next to you, feel free to do that. We'll jot some thoughts down on your piece of paper and uh, then we'll wrap up and transition to communion. Jesus, thank you that over and over again you show us that you love to walk and work with people who don't have it all together. That as we look at what we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, we see over and over again you working with people who just have lots and lots of questions, who don't seem to get it, who seem to struggle to understand things, who struggle to understand what it is that you're really trying to do. And we're really grateful for that because it gives us confidence that you accept us and you embrace us, that you love us and that you want to work with us and walk with us, even though we don't have it all together and even though we have lots of things that we wrestle with and questions that we struggle with. So thank you that we are a part of a church family where we have the opportunity to be able to ask these questions and so many others, that it is a safe space for us to be able to work through the things that we're uncertain about But thank you that with everyone that you journey with, you give clear next steps. That even though there is so much that we're not sure about, 
there are always next things that we can be sure about and that we can work on. We're really grateful for the people who have gone before us, who have spent significant amounts of time really digging into understanding what it is that you came to teach us and different schools of theology, different people who've been able to explore through history that give us confidence to be able to work through things as we have today. We thank you for all of the work that they've done. But we ask that as we head into this week, you would remind us that the goal of our lives is not to have it all together, that our goal is not to try and be perfect to try and have all of our questions answered, but simply to be able to follow you and as we do to be able to experience life the way that you, God, always wanted us to experience it. Thanks that we don't have to wait until we reach heaven to be able to experience that, but that even in this moment we have the opportunity to experience that. In the things that we're going to do this afternoon, we have the opportunity to experience that. In the things that are coming up this week, we have the opportunity to experience that. And we ask that you would help us to tune our radars in to the work that you are doing in our lives and in the lives of the people that we connect with so that we can invite them into it and give them a taste of what heaven is all about that would then inspire and encourage and excite them about what it looks like to discover more about you as well. So we ask that as we head out uh, into this week and continue to explore our questions that you would help us to know that you walk with us through all of it. In your name we pray. Amen.